Well, as I mentioned in the prayer, the book of Hebrews is coming, and um, we're fast approaching the end of Philemon. And I have to say, I am looking forward to our study in the book of Hebrews. Now, I, I don't want to come off in a wrong way, um, but let me just give you a fair warning. If any of you um, ever ask me how long I'm going to take in preaching through this book, I may just give you a blank stare for a, a solid minute because I, I don't know the answer to that question, and I'm just confessing that right now. Okay, I could guess, but I, I don't really know. The first chapter by itself is a survey, in many respects, of the Old Testament. And the book itself, um, and I'm not the only one who has ever said this, but the book itself is essentially a commentary on Psalm 110. As I've mentioned to you before, that is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So the relevancy and importance of Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews is massive. And so we're going to have the privilege of unpacking this precious and beautiful book. And together we will behold the glory of our Savior. So I look forward to that. And, but as I said, we're coming to the final uh, portions of Philemon. And uh, last time, brethren, remember, we were looking at this appeal that Paul promised that he would make. He, in verses 9 and 10, he talked about this appeal that he made to Philemon, that he made for love's sake, he says, in verse 9. And then he says again, repeating the word in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. He was appealing on behalf of Onesimus. Then, last time we were in Philemon, we got to the first of the two appeals that he issues to Philemon. His first appeal was this. He says, if then you regard me a partner, accept him, that is Onesimus, as you would me. And that's an interesting concept because he uses the conditional structure here and he says I want you to accept him as me but he, he says I want you to do so if you regard me a partner but he doesn't qualify what kind of a partner he's even talking about and I would suggest to you that Paul did not have to qualify what kind of a partner he was speaking of of himself being to to Philemon because Philemon knew what kind of a partner Paul was he was a partner in the gospel. This is obvious and clear. In fact, in verse 13, he speaks of Onesimus in this way. He says, whom I wished to keep with me so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the what? For the gospel. This is Paul. This is exactly what Paul has always been about. It is always about magnifying Christ and, and presenting the message of the gospel. It's kind of difficult to imagine, really impossible to imagine, that Philemon would say, yeah, I'm, I'm not a partner. I'm not your partner, Paul. Um, Philemon, who was a godly man himself, had godly priorities, godly priorities that were shared by the apostle Paul. The notion of him rejecting this concept of him being a partner with Paul 
really raises the specter of what it means to reject an apostle. That's a dangerous thing to do. Apostolic authority is apostolic authority. It bears the weight and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself because apostles were the direct representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus rejecting that partnership really is dangerous. This is why the Apostle John, he rebukes, publicly rebukes Diotrephes because of his unjust accusations and for rejecting his apostolic leadership. That's not what a Christian does. And so in his appeal, he issued a challenge for Philemon to consider his allegiances, not based upon worldly priorities, but his allegiances based upon the priority of the gospel. Receive him as me, he says, if you count me a partner. And so it's that second aspect of the conditional statement that we also studied when he says, if you then regard me a partner, accept him as you would me, or other translations in a more literal sense, basically say this, just treat him as if I, I, that, that is in fact me. When you see him, just treat him like it's the Apostle Paul. King James translation has receive him as myself. Young's literal translation says receive him as me. And that's really literally how it is in the Greek. The implications of that are profound. For Philemon to receive Onesimus as if he were the apostle Paul would mean he would treat Onesimus exactly in the manner that he would treat Paul. No longer as a slave, no longer as a piece of property as the world would do, but as a beloved brother in the flesh and in the Lord. Brethren, that transforms everything. We've already talked a little bit about, up to this point, about how it is that slavery in the first century was brutal in many respects. For many individuals who were enslaved, they typically were thieves, criminals. Um, instead of going off to jail, and uh, society paying for their room and board and, and their stay in a, in a prison, in the first century, you paid off your debt by servitude. So if you stole something from somebody, you, you would actually serve that person or labor for that person as a means of compensation for whatever it is that you stole. Onesimus, upon returning to Philemon, would have had a lot to account for in view of his running away. And as a slave, since he was counted as property by the standards of the world, just by running away, he was basically stealing himself technically, and that was according to Roman law. So for Paul to say to Philemon, when he comes back, I want you to receive him just like you would me. And by doing that, he was really helping Philemon to remember these priorities. Number one, it is the priority of the glory of God. God made humanity in his own image and likeness. And brethren, we have to remember that. Every time we see and meet another human being, we have to remember that that individual, whatever we think of them, they were created in the imago Dei, in the image of God, and their valuation is based upon that. Secondly, it reminds us of the priority of the gospel again. 
Paul's partnership in the gospel and the very partnership that he spoke of with respect to Philemon with respect to the gospel reminds us of the fact that when we encounter other people, our priority is to make sure and to know whether or not they know Christ. Whatever you learn about another person, whatever small talk you may have, at the end of the day, we want to get the conversation to the most important question of all, and that is, where are you going when you pass from this life? Do you know Christ? Is he your eternal hope for the soul that you possess? All all of us have souls, and all of us will live forever. The question is, where are you going to abide? Is it going to be in heaven, or is it going to be in hell? And thirdly, and we're going to get into this further here this morning, everything that Paul has been talking about up to this point really reminds us of the priority of love. Basically, Paul is saying to Philemon, I want you to love Onesimus just like he would love me. And I know you love me. So when he comes back, you treat him just like as if it's me. I want you to love him in the same manner. Brethren, this is one of the reasons why I pointed out and have pointed out a few times already. The book of Philemon, I think, is one of the most underestimated books in the New Testament. It is, I think, and I'm not the only one who has said this, it's one of the most underpreached books in the Bible. But remarkably, during the period of the transatlantic slave trade, it was an important book in that it, it provided the death knell to the transatlantic slave trade. Not just this book, but it was a crucial instrument to that end. This is why J.B. Lightfoot says, regarding the importance of the book of Philemon, he says, the epistle to Philemon as the, it was the earliest prelude to the abolition of slavery, and it must be invested with more than common interest in our generation. Why? Because our society is returning back to the kind of bigotry that existed that produced the transatlantic slave trade to begin with. This is why I've spoken openly about the injustices of the social justice movement. We're returning back to a form of bigotry that now is basically reproducing the bigotry of that period. We shouldn't be surprised. Humanity always goes back to this kind of denigration of humanity, and this is why we need scripture to ground our thinking to help us to understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about a human being. So this morning we get now to the second appeal. Having said in the first appeal, he says, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Then he says, in, beginning in verse 18, he says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Then he says parenthetically, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Then in verse 20, he says, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the second appeal that Paul gives to Philemon. Like the first appeal, it is a conditional appeal. Because he says, if, if. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. We're first going to consider the conditional nature of that appeal. And I would say to you, this is very important. 
Uh, we could run over that detail of the fact that it's a conditional appeal, and we might miss too much of the lessons that are in this text if we do so. I don't want to do that. So we'll first con consider the conditional nature of his appeal here in verse 18. Then we'll consider Paul's promissory note of repaying whatever debt there may be that had come about through Onesimus' departure, his running away. So he says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, he says, charge that to my account. And then we'll talk about Paul's ledger of love. How in the world is Paul going to pay this off? How does all this work? If he owes you anything, I want you to charge that to my account. What is he talking about? Is he really talking about literal money? Well, in the end, I would suggest to you that Paul's ledger that he refers to is not monetary, but it is the ledger of love. Philemon had a debt to Paul that was not monetary. It was a debt of love. It was a debt of love that he had to Paul. It was really a debt of love that he had to God and to all mankind. And we'll talk about that in our final point. So let's first of all consider this important appeal that he gives, the conditional nature of the appeal, where he says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, notice what he says here. There are two possibilities. He's basically covering all the bases of what might have happened. He says, if he has wronged you or if he owes you anything. If he has wronged you or if he owes you anything. Again, he's basically saying, you know, whatever happened, whatever can be said about what happened, I want you to, I want you to charge that to my account. This is a remarkable statement of substitution. Paul, again, is basically placing himself in the place of Onesimus, and he's saying, you know what? Wrongdoing, debt, whatever, put it on me. Put it on me. Go ahead and impute that to me, and I'll deal with it. I'll take care of it. But in the conditional statement, look at the word if. Yeah, if you don't mind for a moment, I'm going to preach on the word if. Because the word if is actually very important. He says, if he has wronged you. The conditional statement and the word if is important because at the end of the day, Paul was not an eyewitness to whatever happened. He was not an eyewitness to the events that took place regarding Onesimus' departure and so, therefore, he couldn't testify as an eyewitness regarding what actually took place. And so, as to the question of whether or not Philemon actually suffered any monetary loss or property damage, again, he can't answer for that. Brother, I can't tell you how important that is as a concept. This word, if, this condition, acknowledges the limitations of our human knowledge, especially when we are not a forensic witness to an event. In fact, the Deuteronomic standard that is, is established in the book of Deut Deuteronomy in chapter uh, 19 helps us to understand that when we're talking about a witness, we're talking about someone who had eyeballs on whatever it is that they're going to give testimony regarding as a witness. We call this forensic 
testimony. And this is why we see the text of Deuteronomy 19 repeated in texts like Matthew 18 and 2 Corinthians 13 and 1 Timothy 5, 19. Forensically speaking, a witness, again, is someone who can testify based upon their memory and their knowledge of something that they actually saw. You know, I, I have, uh, I don't know about you, but I've, I've only had to um, go to court a few times in my life, one time as a witness, and I've got to say, it's one of the most frustrating things I've ever experienced, and it kind of opened up my eyes to the uh, decay of our legal system here in America. Um, I think uh, Sandra and I, we were in the, our, our vehicle, and we had the family with us, and all of a sudden, I saw a truck off to my right peel off the road, go off the side of the road, hit a car, and then take off. And I thought to myself, what do I do? I just saw this. So not being terribly smart, I just hit the gas pedal and started following the guy. And finally came to a point where I think it was maybe a mile later, I saw that he had finally pulled off the road. I don't know if he crashed or whatever, but he went off into a ditch. And well, the police were there. So it's all well and good and taken care of. But it all happened so quickly and I know, I know you know the experience. When you see something that happens really quickly, I mean, you, you may have some information that you'll remember, and you, there may be some details that you saw and some things that you certainly didn't see. And it just went like that. And, and I, I went up to the police officer, and I said, listen, I just want you to know I saw what happened back here. So, you know, if you need any assistance with that, um, just let me know. He took my name and my information. Never heard from anybody until four years later. Four years later. And they had me sit, on, sit in the witness stand to testify regarding that quick instantaneous event that happened four years prior. I'll tell you, I, I was, honestly, I had to confess my own attitude because how am I supposed to testify four years later regarding an event that happened that quickly? This is why we have something called the statute of limitations. This is why we have um, time-sensitive considerations regarding a matter of a testimony of a witness. I could barely remember. I, I couldn't even remember exactly the color of the truck or how the accident took place or you know, how far I had to go and so forth. I, you know, This is why, brethren, we have to understand we cannot speak beyond the domain of what we actually know when we're testifying as a witness. And it's interesting to me that Paul doesn't weigh in on this issue and say, well, you know what, Philemon, I know what kind of a man you are, and I know, I've heard Onesimus' side of the story and so forth. And I, let me weigh in on this issue, and I'm just going to adjudicate this matter. He doesn't do that. Because he is governed by the wisdom of Scripture, that's why. This idea of saying if... Acknowledging the fact that, listen, I wasn't an eyewitness, so I cannot weigh in on the issue. It is crucial, and I would suggest to you that where you have individuals or churches that don't understand this, they rush headlong into all kinds of error. Because if we're not willing to profess our ignorance of things that we've not seen, then we tend to try to fill in the gaps and fill in the blank spaces of what we don't know. 
I often think of this proverb, Proverbs 13.10, which says, through presumption, there the Hebrew word is zeed, through presumption comes nothing but strife. Now that's an interesting statement. And you have to understand what's being said there. The word, the Hebrew word zeed speaks of hubris or pride, insolence, somebody who is just so self-absorbed about what they think they know that they don't consult wisdom from outside and they just say what they know. I know what I know what I know. In fact, this is exactly the same word that is used regarding the false prophet who presumes, speaks presumptuously as if he is speaking on behalf of the Lord. It says, the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die. This is how seriously God takes this matter of pride and presumption. And I have to say, by way of confession, I had an early experience that, whereby I was rebuked regarding this principle because I had stepped outside of the bounds of the wisdom of Proverbs 13. I, um, the church that Santa and I uh, visited and, and were a part of when we were engaged and then when we got married, this is one of our, my earlier church experiences, there was an elder who, in the church who tried to draw me into this process of of hearing complaints against the pastor. So the elder would uh, sit, sit me down and talk to me and say, you know, the, the pastor's done this, the pastor's done that, and, and let me tell you about the pastor. And, 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 and at first I'm sitting here thinking, this guy's an elder. I'm confused and why, you know, what's going on here? And for a while I listened to what he was saying in my naivete. I imagined somehow that I should get involved in this even as he spoke negatively of the pastor. But after a while, I began to read the scriptures and consider the fact that, you know what, I'm actually entering into dangerous territory because I'm not an eyewitness to the things that he's talking about. I'm not in the mix of the thing. And I began to realize that, as it says in Proverbs 17:4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, a liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. I was partnering with the sins of that elder who was not talking to the pastor, he was talking to me. And he should have been talking to the pastor. So when they invited me to sit down and talk with all the, the men there, I was a young Christian, but I just opened the pages of scripture and I said, men, what are we doing here? I shouldn't be here at all. Those were some of the early experiences that I had where I realized we have to take this matter seriously. If we don't know or don't understand as an eyewitness what actually took place, we need to say the word if. If your brother sins, you go to him. But that's a big if. You don't know if there's sin. And you have to act only on what you can know and not go beyond that. So Paul says, and this is important, he says, if he has wronged you. He doesn't weigh in on the issue. He says, if this really did happen. And the word that he uses there for wronged is from the word dikaios, adikaios, um, an unrighteous act, something that is a violation of a right standard, particularly the standards of God. If he has wronged you, if he owes you anything, Paul says, you charge that to my account. You know what's interesting? 
is that as you read the Apostle Paul's epistles, you see that there are different variations of how he deals with sin. In the case of 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, and he rebukes the church for the fact that they were taking one another to court over frivolous issues that could be resolved within the body of Christ. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the adikon, the unrighteous, that is the world, and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you a wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged or defrauded? Why not rather be defrauded, he says. You know, of issues that are trivial, maybe like, a slave owing his master some money, set it aside. But when it comes to moral issues and issues that are far more grave, like what we read about in the prior chapter in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say regarding the man who had his father's wife? Does he say, just, you know, just go ahead and just forgive the matter, forget it, and so forth? No, he says, remove the wicked from among you. This is where we have to understand that there are things, there are smaller things that should be addressed within the body of Christ and resolved without conflict. And then there are other issues that are moral issues where the individual who's committing sin must be dealt with. And you can't just, again, like a debt, just smooth it over and say, you know, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. A discerning church has to distinguish between one and the other. Again, it is interesting that Paul does not spell out any particular wrongdoing in the letter. He doesn't say, well, you know what, I've talked to Onesimus, I, I trust him, and I, I know that he, he uh, hasn't really done any wrong, and so let me, just, let me just lobby on his behalf and just say to you, just let it go. Instead, he leaves it to Philemon to tabulate the list of whatever he sees as being a wrongdoing and a loss, and Paul just says, just go ahead and impute that to me. If you wish to pursue Onesimus on the grounds of criminality, make me the guilty party in his place and just forgive the matter. By Paul's teaching in all of the Bible, we know that the sins of others cannot be atoned for by animal sacrifices or by sinful human beings. Paul is not positing this kind of substitution. But he is offering to be penalized on behalf of Onesimus, at least in terms of earthly material punishment for any possible wrongdoing. And I would say to you that while he probably would have been willing to pay the debt, he ends up making an appeal based upon love such that Philemon would actually just let the matter go. And we'll get to that here in a moment. And so his conditional appeal is important. Paul does not insert himself in the middle of something of which he was not an eyewitness. In wisdom, he says, if, 
if this has happened, charge it to my account. And this is then the promissory note. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. If he owes you anything, if he owes you anything. You know, we've already talked about the fact that just by virtue of the fact that a slave, if he ran away again, he was technically, by the standards of Roman law, he was considered to be one who was stealing himself. And therefore, he was further made further guilty by that action. But also, as we talked about before, a fugitive slave, as Joanne Shelton says in the book, As the Romans Did, a fugitive slave would be hunted down by professional slave hunters who knew that there was a reward for his return. He, the runaway, was considered a criminal because he had stolen himself. His master would use heralds to announce his escape and the reward that would be earned upon his capture. And that oftentimes costs a lot of money. In fact, there was a certain slave who was found, according to Shelton, there was a certain slave who was found in a hotel or was in a hotel when a herald entered, followed by a policeman and a a small crowd of people brandishing torches, announcing the identity of the runaway verbally and on inscribed signs that they carried about. The slave named Giton commanded a reward of 1,000 sisterses, which is about $1,100 in U.S. currency in the, in the current day. Again, just finding a slave costs money. So we, we don't know if that's what the expense that Paul has in mind, whether or not uh, Philemon hired heralds in order to recover him. or who. Again, we don't know the background of this, but there's a high likelihood that there would have been some loss in this regard just by virtue of the fact that Onesimus ran away. But mark this. In a world that treated slaves like mere chattel and mere property, Paul is wanting to rein in the thinking of Philemon and help him to think of the humanity of what has taken place. This is why he made the appeal to Philemon to say, treat him just like you would me, and with respect to any loss, if there be any, charge it to my account. Again, he's making everything about himself in the sense of saying, I'll deal with it. You know me, you know my priorities, we're partners in the gospel, put it on me. This is the humanity of Paul's appeal. We can talk about money all day long, we can talk about monetary losses all day long, but at the end of the day, Paul is appealing to Philemon on the basis of his relationship with him. Brethren, this is one of the reasons why I believe that we have to be mindful of the fact that Every generation has to renew its understanding about the valuation of humanity. I've already mentioned Thomas Jefferson, who is oftentimes lionized as one of our founding fathers. And again, he was indeed used in a remarkable way in establishing our nation. But I really get concerned when we overstate the matter of who these men were and make them out to be more than what they in fact were. As I was researching this question of the transatlantic slave trade, I came across some remarkably sad texts regarding our founding fathers and their attitudes. Thomas Jefferson said this, 
he, he wrote the following. He says, I have the opinion that they, African America, Africans, are inferior in the faculties of reason and imagination, must be hazarded with great uh, diffidence, modesty or, or timidity. To justify a general conclusion requires many observations, even where the subject may be submitted to the anatomical knife, to optical glasses, to analysis by fire or by solvents, where our conclusion would degrade a whole race of men from the rank in the scale of beings, which their creator may perhaps have given to them, to our reproach, it must be said that, that though for a century and a half we have had under our eye the races of black and of red men, they have never yet been viewed as a subjects of natural history. I advance it, therefore, as a suspicion only that blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowments of both body and mind. This is one of the reasons why I've mentioned R.L. Dabney and the sad reality of the fact that he de denigrated humanity in the same way speaking of the inferiority of other members of the human race who are made in the image and likeness of God. Originally, the Declaration of Independence had a clause in it that appealed for the liberation of slaves. In that, in that statement, Jefferson rebuked King George for his support of the slave trade. Again, it was a, that portion was omitted from the Declaration of Independence, and some have, have surmised that Jefferson removed it in order to save face and embarrassment in light of the fact that he himself owned 700 slaves. What a hypocrisy that was, isn't it? This is why, brethren, I say we shouldn't promote patriotic history. We should promote real history with all the good, the bad, and the ugly because every time we come to any historical record, if we're not measuring it by the standards of scripture, if we're just promoting a historical narrative in order to elevate a patriotic notion regarding our nation, that means you're going to lose your objectivity, your scriptural and biblical objectivity. We must never do that. These were mere mortals, flawed men who had all kinds of issues and problems and ideologies that were against the word of God. Thomas Jefferson, who did not know Christ himself, we should expose these things and acknowledge the fact that God in his sovereignty, yes, he used these men to establish this nation, but let's not lionize them beyond who they really were. In the end, we must see the image of God in others. There will always be a degradation of humanity among men. And this is why in our proclamation of the gospel, we must herald this primacy of the importance of every human soul, remembering that there is no distinction among men. There are not some individuals who are more important than others or some who are less important than others. All have been created in the image and likeness of God. All need Christ. So whatever debt there is, whatever wrong there is, Paul says, charge it. Charge it to my account. 
Paul uses the same word. It's only used twice in the Bible. He uses the same word in Romans 5.13 where he speaks of the idea of sin being imputed to mankind. Lay it to my account, in other words, charge it to me. And then he says this. After he says, charge it to my account, he says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I will repay it. It's very common that letters that were written in the day were written by an amanuensis, an individual who basically dictated the letter on behalf of the other individual, on the uh, behalf of the author. But oftentimes Paul would add his own signature to make sure that the recipients of his letters would understand that it really was him. So to the Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. To the Thessalonians, he says in 2 Thessalonians, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. I don't know what his handwriting was like. I hope it was better than mine. Uh, but somehow they knew by... The, by the letter itself and by seeing his handwriting, they say, oh yeah, that's Paul. That's how he signs his letters. And so with his own hand, he writes this promissory note indicating that he would pay the debt if need be because he was standing in the place of Onesimus as his substitute and just said, put it on me. Put it on me. And so his conditional appeal shows us his humility. He doesn't weigh in on a matter of which he did not have personal understanding or knowledge as, a, as an eyewitness. He issues his promissory note of saying, I'll, I'll go ahead and pay the debt if, it's, if, that, if it comes to that. But then we come to his ledger of love, wherein Paul basically issues his appeal on the basis of love. He says, Again, in verse 19, he says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then he says, not to mention to you that you owe me, to me, even your own self as well. I love this because he's basically saying, you know what, if it's going to come to that, I'll pay it. But you know what? Remember this. You have a debt of love to me. Let me remind you of this. If you really need the money, fine. I'll cover it. But don't you forget this debt of love. You know, in Paul's lexicon, we need to remember that this is really, a, indeed, a ledger of love. What is the real covering cost for all of this? When we really get down to the nitty-gritty of what we're talking about here. When he says that you owe even yourself to me, in Paul's own lexicon, we have to remember that Paul talks about love in this sense of the fact that we are debtors to God, debtors to mercy, and that we owe to God our love and our service to him, not that we could ever repay the debt. That's so important. But we have a debt of love to our Lord who redeemed us, and we have a debt of love to one another. 
as his children. And this isn't just in the writings of Paul, this is throughout Holy Writ. So do you remember, recently we were in Luke 17, we were talking about the attitude of a bond slave, the attitude of a servant of God, whereby it, the, the servants will say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we, remember the word, ought to have done. And so we talked about the importance of that word, and that is in fact a word that speaks of indebtedness. We're doing that which we ultimately owe to our master. That is the attitude of a true bond slave. And as bond slaves of Christ, that is to be our attitude in our service to Christ. Brethren, it's important that we understand this principle of indebtedness. Even in the parable of the king with respect to the forgiven servant, remember Jesus says, that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him, and there's the word ophilo. He owed him 10,000 talents, an expense that never could be repaid in this life. And what did the king do? He forgave him. He forgave him. That language of indebtedness, the debt of sin, is crucial in our understanding. It is everywhere in Holy Writ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, we are reminded of the fact that in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. Apolutrosin. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That word, lutro, speaks of, of the idea of a debt that is paid in order to free one who is a slave. And we were slaves to sin, and Christ paid that debt for us according to the riches of his grace. And now we're free. Now we're redeemed. Now we're his possession. Now we're bond slaves of Christ. But it came at a great cost. That's why we sing in the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. But drops of grief can ne'er repay. We can't repay this debt. Drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Just giving myself to you. We have a debt of love to God to live as bond slaves of Christ, to serve him, to know that our lives are his. But with that, according to the foremost commandment, we have a debt of love to one another, a debt of love to our neighbor. And so again in Paul's lexicon, he says, oh, And there it is again, ophilite, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. What kind of a debt should we have? A debt of love. That's Paul's definition of debt. The believer has a debt of love to God and man. And by the way, husbands and wives, men, you owe it to your wife to love her. That same word is used in Ephesians 5.28. It says, so husbands, a phylusin, 
ought also to love or are indebted to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. You owe it to your bride to love her. Because you're a debtor to mercy before God and you have a debt of love to your neighbor and your bride is your most immediate neighbor in this life. And because of that, we have an obligation and need to be forgiving to others. To those who repent and ask for forgiveness. Back to the parable of the king and the forgiven servant. That slave that was forgiven such an incalculable amount, it says that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So then his fellow slaves saw what had happened. They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. And then he says, You should have. Or he says, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? And there he uses the word day, another word of indebtedness. It was your due or indebtedness to your fellow servant to extend mercy to him and forgive him. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as, and that's the key comparison, even as I had mercy on you. And that's what we call a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. We have a debt of love to God, a debt of love to one another. And Paul's ultimate ledger here that he presents, it's not monetary. He's saying, you know what, brother, you owe me yourself. We're debtors to mercy, debtors of love to God, and debtors of love to one another. Treat him like you would me and extend love and forgiveness to him. And all of that brings us back to the way in which he began the epistle. Remember how he was repeatedly talking to Philemon about how it is that God had poured out such love in his heart. He commends him for the faith and love that he was living out in his life. And so now he draws from that account and says, listen, consider the riches of grace that God has given to you regarding the faith and love that you have. Now spend it, spend it. And in spending that love and mercy and forgiveness, Paul was basically reminding Philemon of what a blessing that would be to his own heart. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you and the Lord refresh my heart in Christ. Do this, do it. Brethren, we have remarkable responsibilities as the children of God. And our principal responsibility is to live for Christ, that he would be our first love, and that we would live as a people who truly are debtors to mercy and who extend mercy and grace to others, just as the the way in which the Lord has extended that grace and mercy to us. 
and coming to the Lord's table, all these things must be on our own hearts and minds. This table is a reminder to us of the manner in which we have been given such grace and mercy, without which we ourselves would be lost. So I'd like for us to take some time to prepare our hearts in preparation for this table. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward for the Lord's table, please. Brethren, it is our desire to honor Christ in this table. Paul warned the Corinthians in view of their casual treatment of the table. In this manner, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so this is why we take the time to pray. We'll have a moment of silent prayer, and I would encourage all of you to pray before the Lord and confess any sins that need to be confessed, address any matters that need to be addressed before the Lord, understanding, again, that this is a great privilege, and we do not want to dishonor the Lord in this table. So let's begin with a a word of silent prayer. 